When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Spark Parade. I am your host, Adam Unz. Now, where to begin, my friends? This is all very exciting. Uh, I think a good place to start is telling you what you're listening to. So the clever and concise tagline I have come up with for the show is a podcast featuring conversations with amazing people about the art and culture that has shaped their lives. Now, what does that mean? Uh, The idea for the show came just after the 2016 election in the United States, which, in my humble opinion, did not go exactly according to plan. And when the current president was inaugurated, he came into office with a list of rather terrible agenda items, and one of them was to withdraw federal funding for the arts. Uh, He has, of course, since moved on to persecuting black people and brown people and immigrants and women and gay people and trans people and anybody else he can get his grubby little hands on. So I think uh, withdrawing federal funding for the arts has taken a back burner, at least for now. Yet, I still think it is very important to discuss the vital role that art plays in any healthy, functioning society. So so as a means of doing that, I wanted to talk to some of the people I admire most about the artists and artwork that have shaped them. That can mean many things to each individual person. And the artwork that we're going to be talking about will run the gamut, all different kinds of art forms. So to give you an idea of the types of stuff we'll be talking about, I'll, uh, I'll throw out a couple of anecdotes here. Uh, who does not love an anecdote? So the first one is uh, I have a friend named Vin, and he was visiting New York recently. We had a drink. And I know Vin because he uh, came from England on an exchange program to the University of Minnesota and studied with my sister a long time ago when they were in college. And Vin was talking a little bit about his life and his kind of career trajectory and um, the decisions that led him to the life that he has now. And he said when he started that exchange program in Minnesota, he had a choice between doing an exchange in uh, Minneapolis or doing one in Denver. And he chose Minneapolis because he loves prints. (laughs) And that was the thing that you know, led him down the path to the career that he has now. And he can see a really direct line between the decision to go to Minnesota and um, the life he has. So I thought that was amazing, first of all, because loving Prince enough to move to Minneapolis is obviously the right way to feel. Um, But also the idea that 
the art that he loved was important enough to him that he made these huge life-changing decisions in part because he loves Prince's music. I think that's pretty incredible. So in addition to that little story, I think it's important in the first episode for me to give you an example from my own life. Um, Why should my guests have the burden of uh, coming up with an artist who's important to them if I can't do it myself? So uh, art is extremely important to me. I have thousands of examples I could give throughout my life, but one that sticks out is a production of The Piano Lesson at the Penumbra Theater in St. Paul in 1993. Penumbra is a black theater company in St. Paul that had a very close relationship with August Wilson, so they do a lot of his work. And this production featured a performance by a woman named Rebecca Rice, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, And she played Bernice, and her work was just absolutely amazing, really blew me away. And I was really young at the time. And it was the first time that I can remember seeing an actor on stage and just thinking that is what I want to do. That is the kind of feeling that I want to make audiences feel when they're watching me. Penumbra also has a summer program. And I was lucky enough when I was a kid to be taught by Rebecca Um, in that summer program. And that was a really formative experience in my life too. Um, She was so kind and so compassionate and really loved art and artists and wanted to surround herself with both. And um, her enthusiasm was infectious and she really helped her students to understand and appreciate theater. Um, And I think the combination of that and seeing her perform and being so captivated by her on stage um, is one of the times that I can really clearly remember knowing that that performance is why I want to be an actor. Um, So yeah, that's that's a little taste of something from my life. So now, moving swiftly along, uh, the rest of the episode coming up, I will be talking to my dear friend, Ali Gitlow, who is a commissioning editor. Uh, She has worked on some amazing, amazing books. Uh, You can check out her work on her website. We will talk about that more later. Um, But I am going to be talking to her about Fruits Magazine, which was a monthly Japanese street fashion magazine. It was founded by a photographer named Shoichi Aoki, Um, And it documented the fashion um, and youth culture uh, in the Harajuku neighborhood in Japan for uh, 20 years. There were books, uh, compilation books created from the magazines, and Ali wanted to talk about those. So uh, that is coming up. And right after the interview, I'll be talking a little bit about the art that I have appreciated in the last week or so. I say or so because, hey, I didn't have a podcast before this week and uh, there's stuff that I want to talk about that didn't happen this week. So deal with it. Uh, So anyway, here we go. My chat with Ali Gitlow. Um, So we should talk about fruit. Yes. Let's talk about fruits. My fave. It's so amazing. It is so amazing. It reminds me of, it looks like Vice magazine ripped off some of the aesthetic, like when they used to do those kind of. The do's and don'ts. Yeah. I was a don't once also, which is. Very good. 
it was really, I was, when I was in my early twenties, I was not excited at the time. Now I'm pretty proud that it happened, but um, at the time it was horrible. But yes, aesthetically, there is totally a similarity. I guess it's like the beginning of like street style photography, really. Yeah. But, you know, I think Vice magazine was always more focused on just being snarky and cool instead of documenting what was happening. And Fruits is like showing exactly what the scene was like, not, you know, it, and how it evolved in mm-hmm. Harajuku and less snarky commentary on what people were wearing, just kind totally. of you know, talking about what they were wearing, but not uh, making fun of it. Yes. Um, but... Do you remember how you found out about it? Yes. So I was, I guess I was 16 or 17. Art Basel had sort of started becoming a thing in Miami where I grew up. And my parents went to the main fair one year and they had seen the photographer who founded Fruits as a magazine in Japan also was represented by a gallery and so sometimes would show some of the photographs as just big standalone artworks separate to the magazine. And my parents saw some of them at a, at a gallery in Art Basel and they were selling like postcards and a book of it. Because, um, yeah, so Fiden, the art book publisher, had published really recently a compendium of all of this guy's f- photographs of these Harajuku street teenager stylish people and so my parents just loved it and they brought it home and I remember them hanging the postcards like getting them framed and hanging a few of them in their bathroom and we were all kind of obsessed with it but for me it was just like holy shit this is what I want to look like Mm -hmm. (laughs) if I had if I had my druthers if I like knew how to put myself together to that degree like it just felt like seeing for the first time ever like this is amazing that's how I want to look and I guess really starting to become obsessed with subculture and youth culture which I still am to this day Mm -hmm. (laughs) and which informs my life and my career yeah it it felt like I, I read there was an ID interview with the photographer. Hmm, how do you say his name? Shoichi. Shoichi? Yeah. Shoichi Aoki. Let's say. Yeah. Let's say that's, that's the pronunciation. Just talking about the period just before fruit started in Japan, that everything was very high fashion and it was like calm de garçon, and people who were cool were just wearing really really expensive clothes that could basically be found in any city where people can afford really expensive clothes. Mm-hmm. And that what Fruits was documenting was the beginning of this kind of DIY fashion and culture movement that it was the first time in Japan, definitely, but one of the first times, one of the most influential times in the world where kids were making their own clothes and creating their own style and mixing and matching like traditional Japanese clothes with just random weird shit and coming up with things that nobody had ever seen before and really making fashion their own instead of having it be this elite thing that if you're lucky it'll trickle down to you and yeah you could also really feel living in cities like New York and London Shoreditch and uh, in the early days of Williamsburg that same kind of feeling of people really taking matters into their own hand to create mm-hmm. own hands to create their own culture totally i loved that mix of some of them would wear like some fancy high fashion like vivian westwood piece with like a dollar store 
you know, skirt and just and like plastic sunglasses and somehow make it all work. I guess the just the over the topness was really appealing. The colors were really appealing, like just wearing like all pink with a pink wig and giant shoes that look like clown shoes or some of them had sort of like a cyber burgeoning rave aesthetic mm-hmm. or some of them would look like dandies from like the 30s it was really really varied but everyone just looked impeccably put together and the crazy thing is most of them were like 17 18 years old um which i guess i didn't really realize at the time when i first saw it but now looking back it's just like man some people know what's up <laughs> like, yeah, yeah so impressive yeah um, I think it's amazing how young they were and how far reaching the influence of those fashions. Uh, again, reading interviews about the magazine and just about the history of it. Um, this tiny part of Japan, this tiny neighborhood, really influencing fashion and culture worldwide is so incredible. And that it was, you know, there, there had been other things like that, like punk um, mm-hmm. it kind of infecting youth culture worldwide or hip hop. Um, but that this was really its own thing. And like you said, it's this combining of high fashion with like <laughs> found object to clothing, mm-hmm. um, is really, really unique and amazing. Yeah. I guess like the sort of punky aspect of it is what I like the most, just cause I guess like you t- people, think of Japanese culture as pretty traditional and the idea of these kids just putting together these insane outfits is kind of like a big fuck you to normal society, which is something that I've always really loved in whatever form it comes in. And then also just like the gender bending aspect, like a lot of times there would be guys in like really long skirts and women in suits. And there was that kind of thing going on too. Like they just were not afraid to do absolutely anything and I don't think it was, like, necessarily for the express purpose of rebellion. It was more just, like, attention to detail, just being, like, great at, like, turning a look for the sake of it. But I think that in itself, just, like, because of where and when it happened, like, in the, you know, mid to late 90s Japan, was just so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. And especially, you know, I, I haven't ever been to Japan, but the Japanese people that I know all say that there's this expectation, at least... Um, traditionally that people present a public face that's Mm -hmm. very, you know, there's there's an expectation of almost neutrality. Nobody wants to rock the boat. Everybody is kind of, you know, polite and not disturbing anybody else. And so that to me makes it even more radical that it's this complete rejection of that. And instead of not rocking the boat and blending in and making sure that you are presenting the same public face as everybody else. It's exactly the opposite. And it's like, everybody look at me and really creating a strong identity for yourself and not wanting it to be that you're, you know, creating a strong identity as a group and everybody has a similar aesthetic. You want to be the only one with that aesthetic. And the way that the scene evolved as well, that it was like somebody would come up with a really cool, unique way of styling themselves. And then the second that other people did it, they didn't want to do it anymore. And it would be like, <laughs> pressure to you know, come up with something new, which I thought was truly amazing, too. Totally. Yeah. It's like 
this, I don't know, thing that teenagers are particularly good at of just like evolving style at a psychotic pace. It's amazing that all of this was happening before the internet was something that we all used all of the time. It's like, I don't actually, well, really, I guess this magazine fruits was, you know, the way that people could kind of chart the progression of it. And so it was so cool when finally this book of it was published, um, which was in 2001. So the magazine had been around for like four or five years by then that it was able to like get out to the world at large. And I imagine that probably had like an interesting, cause the book was really successful. Um, I wonder, you know, what kind of impact that had back in Harajuku for these kids that were in these photos. Um, and I think, yeah, I think a few years later, a follow-up book was published called Fresh Fruits. So yeah, it kind of became like a whole thing for a while on a much larger scale before you could just look at these kind of photos on the internet. And I don't know if today with the internet, if this would have just been a blog or would it have been a magazine, would it have been a book? Hard to say, but yeah. I'm glad it was a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the things that Shoichi Aoki was saying after the magazine stopped being published, that the, one of the reasons, you know, there's the famous quote of him saying there are no more cool kids to photograph, which I think mm -hmm. is a little bit like, well, <laughs> they might not yeah. be, you know, centralized in this one area. I think part of it was gentrification as well. Like there was a public square in Harajuku that was pedestrianized and um, they got rid of it and allowed cars through. So um, this, you know, kind of central meeting point in the neighborhood was gone, but also just, you know, global recognition of the area, fucking Gwen Stefani, <laughs> you know. Yep. Um, and that now, instead of being cool Japanese teenagers, it's like white people visiting and taking pictures and, you know, singing Gwen Stefani songs. Um, yep. But so there's that kind of stuff that affected, you know, cha changed the, the character of the neighborhood. But exactly like you said, the Internet not only changed the way that people interact with media, but like the, the way that these kids were dressing, part of it was just, you know, being young and having a specific style and part of it was definitely to have people noticing them and if you're living in a time where the only way that people notice you is by walking past you on the street or you get a picture of you taken and put in this magazine or put in one of the books and it's still a specific it's not something that everyone is going to see compared to being on the internet and things just get passed around and everything can go everywhere and anyone mm -hmm. in the world can see anything at any time, that the way to get attention is, it, it doesn't have to be a local thing. It can be this, you know, you right. can take ridiculous pictures of yourself or get dressed up in a really cool, stylish way that nobody's seen before and take videos of yourself and then everybody in the world can see it. Mm -hmm. um, so the ways that people communicate with each other are so different that, yeah, it feels like I, I don't know that that specific kind of scene can happen in the same way anymore. Right. Like the same kid who was like, OK, it's Sunday. Now I like put on my coolest outfit and I go down to Harajuku and I strut around might just be like, I'm going to do the same thing, but alone in my bedroom and just take pictures and put them on Instagram because I don't even have to leave the house to get 
the acclaim for my look on the street. Like, it's too much work. You don't have to work that hard, which is kind of sad. But, oh, well, there's other cool things always. Yeah. And also just, you know, if I go and walk around my neighborhood and get seen by maybe a couple of hundred people, that's cool. But I can be seen by three million people if I put on Instagram. Um, it is kind of depressing to think that the only reason (laughs) that that scene existed was for people to like get some kind of local fame. I don't think that's the case, but yeah, it is really interesting and interesting to think of how the internet has changed print media and yeah, just the way, the ways that people get information about culture and are influenced by things are so different now too. It's crazy. It's so much faster. It's so, you know, at the time, like getting that book, I probably had not that much exposure to Japanese culture, which I'm now pretty obsessed with. But like now you can be a kid in Russia that's really interested in like German techno and you you can just find out about things that are far from you or quite different from where you are so easily um, so that everything happens at this really accelerated pace, which is like weird and scary, but also cool and exciting in its own way. It mm-hmm. will be interesting to see where it goes. I think it's always good to like have a positive feeling about this kind of stuff and like resist nostalgia and like being stuck in one's ways. Cause like, there's just always some young people doing some interesting stuff, like no matter what, no matter what, like, your curmudgeonly father says, like, Bob Dylan was the greatest and that was it forever. Like, it's just never, it's never right. It's like, he is great and also, like, this weird thing is great. It's all good. Yeah, I mean, just think about the way people who I'm friends with who lived in New York in the 90s and the whatever you call the first decade of this century. I, I, the aughts. Saying, saying aughts makes me <laughs> kind of wretch. Yeah, it's awful. Not Ooh. cute at all. Anyway, that decade. Um, having this crabby nostalgia saying, oh, things just aren't what they used to be. I'm. Did, did you read uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom? Is that no. what it's called? Is that what it's called? That book that's like about the rock scene in the early part of this century in the late nineties and stuff, you know, like the strokes and the AAs and um, Uh, it's all taken from interviews and just like snippets verbatim from people talking about that time. Um, And it's really interesting, but universally all of them are like, Oh, New York just sucks now. I mean, most of them are like, Oh, New York sucks. I moved to Connecticut. That's where I mansion. Um, (laughs) But that kind of attitude where I think it's totally fine to mourn your New York that you knew or your Tokyo or your London or wherever you live and say, man, that was great. I really loved being young and having my experience of the city, but to completely write it off and be like, oh, New York is just a playground for the rich now. And it's like, fuck you. There are tons of people who don't have any money who are still doing great things. You just don't know about them anymore. Absolutely. That that is always going to be true. Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of what I was saying about the um, Shoichi Aoki's attitude towards Closing Fruits, where he's like, oh, there's no cool people anymore. (laughs) Yeah. It's so much harder to make the magazine because it takes so much longer because I have to wait around for years before I find one cool person. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, dude. Like, yeah, maybe it's not exactly the same as it used to be, but 
maybe it just means that you don't really know where the cool people are anymore. Totally, because the answer is like they're there. They're just not in the same neighborhood, which is now gentrified. And this is what happens. It's like further out. It's an area further out that you should ask your younger friends about, and they'll tell you, and then you'll find cool kids to photograph. Right, right. Because they're totally there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, but as a historical document, it's so amazing to have 20 years of this one neighborhood that was so influential and even if it is a contained period and it's like going to be this time capsule now that it's not you know if it's true that that neighborhood is completely changed and there's nothing there that none of the stuff that made fruits what it was is still there having all of these pictures and seeing the progression and it wasn't even like a linear progression it was like this thing would happen and like you said it's so fast moving because it's all of these 15, 16, 17 year old little mm-hmm. who have no attention span. Yep. Um, but really rapidly evolving and so creative, so amazing. Like it, it kind of does boggle my mind, even though I know throughout history that, you know, art is theoretically limitless and people will always be coming up with new things. But seeing that kind of intense creativity in such a small area over, you know, so rapidly changing over, you know, quite a long period of time is really amazing. Yeah. It's just like, I guess when I think about it, it's just like how I want, wanted and kind of still want like (laughs) everyone to look or just the people to, I just love the idea of young people just like completely making up their own rules and just looking like really vibrant and diverse and colorful and crazy and eye-catching. It's like, yeah, swoon, basically. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I love them. Yeah. Well, there's still time. You know, you can uh, start today. Just uh, <laughs> start your own youth fashion movement. I feel like I need a stylist. Like I would, if I didn't have to pay for it, I would welcome a personal stylist. I would just be like, here's the mood board. I have a lot of ideas about what I like, but I don't really have the patience to do anything about it. Or rarely, maybe on like a costume situation I do, but that's about it. Um, So I need help to uh, look like one of the fruits kids, but I would do it in a heartbeat. Oh God. Um, how, How do you, like, do you feel like that kind of aesthetic and the, work that was displayed in fruits has influenced you in your job or you just said that it did so yeah it, about well, that. yeah it actually totally not at all not on purpose at the time not until i look back on the way things have ended up uh has the place of fruits made sense but yeah so i got that book as like a 17 year old and then went to college and studied film and art and then I sort of just ended up in the art book publishing world and at a publisher that's essentially a competitor slash very similar to the company that published the Fruits books. And I didn't ever intend to end up in the industry. It just sort of made sense. I always liked writing and magazines and publishing. And yeah, I kind of just didn't realize it could be a job. And then slowly I've kind of made it my job to make books like this Um, and I I never like set out with that intention but it does feel like it makes a ton of sense now and like I've 
even made a few kind of Japan-centric books. Like I did one a few years ago called Kawaii, Japan's Culture of Cute, that um, is just about like the phenomenon of cute things in, in Japan from like historically cute things to Hello Kitty to to Shuichi Oki. There's some of his photos in the book and the information about fruits. Um, so it's kind of cool to make a book that included this in it. Um, yeah, and I'm doing another book with the same author right now about cats in Japanese culture. Like everything from Studio Ghibli films to like 16th century woodblock prints and everything in between. So yeah, I kind of like continue my Japan obsession and my youth culture obsession. Like my favorite books to make are with and about young authors. And I did like a British street style book a couple years ago. Um, yeah, things like that are my favorite. And it only makes sense now that the fruits book like totally has essentially become my job <laughs> like to make that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm good with that. Like, I don't, yeah, I've never felt like I had like a true calling in life, but the idea of, I just like things and to be able to make a thing about things that I like in whatever form is like cool with me mm -hmm. to just be able to think about and talk about and deal with stuff I'm into. Uh, yeah. So I feel lucky that that kind of came around. Yeah. And I feel like there's a sizable chunk of the world who do not have that joy in their life. Their, you know, their work means something to them and excites them. So it's pretty lucky yeah. to, to have that in your life. I know. Yeah. And I guess the way I kind of think about it now is a lot of my favorite books that I make as a commissioning editor are like my goal is to get them in the hands of young teenagers and 20 somethings to be inspired the way I was by the fruits book, by like culture and art and design and fashion mm -hmm. that, that someone could have an experience like that from a book that I had a hand in making. That's kind of like what I see as the positive, like mission of what I do. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that like the, t like the concept of being a teenager is like, mm -hmm. well, I, I like everything, something we invented and actually like didn't exist until I think like the forties. Yeah. So it's really kind of a new thing that has like, yeah, not really been around that long. And the influence is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, you feel like we got it. Do you have any, yeah. um, you have any uh, other no. last thoughts? I don't think so. I feel I feel like we touched on all of the points that one would want to touch on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Good. Yeah, Great. I'm happy. Me too. So if my millions of listeners would uh, <laughs> want to find you somewhere, yes. Yes. how would they do that? The internet girl, AllieGitlow.com. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. All my books and articles are on there um, in a beautifully designed website, courtesy of my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at it right now, and I have to say, I agree. Oh, thank you. It's very colorful, which is the main goal for me of most things. So, yeah. Colorful, <laughs> user-friendly, uh, eye-catching. What more could you want? Exactly. That's it. <laughs> 
days. Thank you very much for talking to me. Of course. I very much appreciate it. Anytime. And, uh, this was fun. Totally. Bye. Bye. That was amazing. Allie is great. Uh, if you want to find out more about her and her work or Shoichi Aoki and Fruits Magazine, there's a lot more info in the show notes. So check that out. Now it is time for everyone's favorite segment of the show. Uh, how can anyone have a favorite segment of a show that's just started? Don't worry about that. Uh, it is time for me to talk about the art that I have been uh, engaging with over the last week, stuff that I've enjoyed. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about is a play called Choir Boy. Um, it is on Broadway right now, written by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who you may know as the screenwriter of Moonlight. Um I will just read you the little synopsis off of the play's website because, hey, they paid somebody to write a nice little synopsis, and it means that a lazy person like me doesn't have to write his own. So, uh, for half a century, the Charles R. Drew Prep School for Boys has been dedicated to the education of strong, ethical black men. One talented student has been waiting for years to take his rightful place as the leader of the legendary gospel choir. But can he make his way through the hallowed halls of this institution if he sings in his own key? Now, this isn't really a spoiler, but uh, sings in his own key is a euphemism for gay. Um, so it's kind of a coming of age story for uh, a gay black kid. Um, and it's really funny. Uh, the The writing is absolutely spot on in terms of uh, writing dialogue for teenage boys. The way that they interact with each other feels really real. Um, and it's a play with music, so uh, you get to hear the, the choir singing quite a bit. And oh, these actors have absolutely insane voices, just phenomenal. Um, so I recommend that if you happen to be in New York. The other thing I wanted to talk about is a concert I went to recently. I went to see Toni Braxton, um, and she was amazing and ridiculous. It was like going to a Vegas show. You know, she walks down like a white staircase at the beginning of it, and then the staircase never gets used again. And there's like chandeliers everywhere and wind machines and uh, flowing silk pieces of fabric coming down from the ceiling. Just ridiculous. But um, she, to me, was not the star of the show. Her opening act was SWV. I... Uh, have pretty eclectic taste in music. Um, I, I like all different kinds of musical genres, but I would say if I were forced to choose a musical genre that uh, defined me or that summed me up best, it would be 90s R&B and hip hop. And SWV hold a very special place in my heart. Um, I had never seen them perform before. And so it was this totally incredible experience for me and they were so amazing just like pure joy from start to finish hilariously funny the like asides to the audience were just amazing and they sounded great and they did full choreography oh, i yeah my life has changed so that is it episode one done basically uh, well done, all of us. Well done, me, for talking, and well done, you, for listening. I hope you enjoyed that, and uh, will join me again next week. Uh, you should follow the show on social media. It's at Spark Parade basically everywhere. Uh, also, thesparkparade.com is the website. If you want more information, you can look there, too. 
Um, we also have a little donate button on the website if you feel like throwing a few bucks our way um, to help support the show. If you're like, uh, fuck you, uns, podcasts are free. Totally fair. I get it. Uh, so you could also write us a nice review or rate us five stars. Um, I don't know why I'm referring to myself in the plural. It's just me. It's just me. You can uh, give me a nice review. Um, and if you aren't enjoying the show that much, just keep it to yourself. You can write down a, a little note. You can write a negative review and then just like fold up the note and put it in uh, your sock drawer and leave it there for all time. Uh, I have a few people to thank, people who have uh, helped me immensely in the creation of this show. So uh, special thanks to Chris Hutchinson, Kelly Ridgway, Alex Ennis, Rod Thomas, and Owen John for their support. Thanks again for listening and uh, join me again next week. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.